Good morning again. Good seeing all of you this morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Richmond. If you're visiting online, glad to have you here as well. It's um, hard to believe, but January is completely in the books. One down, 11 to go. So uh, uh, we had a great uh, month of January, Wednesday prayer. We got to pray and uh, kind of undergird the year and looking forward to seeing what God will do the remainder of this year. Uh, still haven't had a whole lot of winter here. Like We had a cold weather the other day, but then I saw like there was places in Maine that were like 54 below and things like that, so uh, ours wasn't so bad uh, compared to what other people are getting, but good to see all of you. We had a great uh, service in the 8.30 service, and I don't know about you, but I am really glad to be part of the family of God. How about you? Uh, aren't you glad this world isn't your home, uh, that you really are passing through when you see uh, how bizarre and how confused and uh, all of those things that, um, that this world, we're just singing uh, holy, 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 and every day you're alive. If you know Jesus, you are closer to seeing that in heaven with all the saints that are already waiting for us there. And uh, so we get closer and closer to that, uh, but we are here to continue to grow until we get there. I got a few things this morning before we get into the study of John. I wanted to reference back this Wednesday night. How many came out Wednesday night and were here for the um, uh, Jesus, the Shepherd of My Soul? How many of you would recommend the video to anyone else? Uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's really awesome. Um, filmed on location in Israel. We, we did post the link to it for those who didn't get a chance to see it. And uh, we had a great discipleship discussion. Uh, the dinner was nice as well. Uh, Y'all sang happy birthday to me. That I didn't enjoy, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but I thank you for it. I just don't really generally, I don't even, I don't know. I don't do great with birthday songs. But anyway, I, I do it. But we had a great night talking about Jesus, the shepherd of our soul. And uh, Joel Kramer, who put the whole thing together, filmed on location in Israel, just phenomenal. Uh, and it just really helps you understand a little bit more about through the scriptures, Jesus as your shepherd, but just who we are as sheep, how helpless, how lost, we cannot find water, we cannot find life without Jesus, and so uh, just follow him closer. So it's on the, if you're not on our internal, if this is your church home, and you're not on our internal Facebook page, which is cal called Calvary Tales, you can send a note to questions at calvarychapelrva.com, questions at calvarychapelrva.com. Say, can you please add me, give us your fa Facebook profile name, and we will add you, we'll invite you to the internal Facebook, because we have an external and an internal so you get on the internal one, and then we post things there that we don't post on the public one. Although this week we probably will put the link to the video on the public one just for you know, people that are out there that uh, would be good for anyone to watch it. So, um, But just letting you know that we would love to do that, and uh, we had a great evening of discussion. And then uh, I wanted to bring your attention. I didn't mention it Wednesday, but uh, many of you are well aware, although the Cawthorns are smiling in this picture uh, they have shed a lot of tears in the last week or so. Uh, they had sent a note to Sarah and I early in the week, said we, we, something's not right, uh, we're going to be headed to the doctor, and we're just not sure what's going on. And um, as it turns out, their little baby is now home to be with the Lord. And, uh, you know, uh, Lee's dad, Jack, is here this morning. And, uh, you know, they will be back coming back to the States. They already planned to be back in the States because Lee's brother is getting married and they were already coming back, uh, but they have stayed in Delhi to just um, rest and get uh, any additional medical care uh, there in Delhi to not return to the city they were in and then fly back here on the 14th. So uh, we'll be able to love on them here in Richmond, but um, you know it's very difficult to lose. Uh, and a, a little girl, they only have, they have, they have three boys. Um, they, they had a little girl that God, in his own sovereignty and wisdom, has already uh, taken home to be with him. And yes, they will meet her someday, but there's a lot of sorrow and sadness. So just be, I know that many of you are praying for them, and you've showered them with your notes and text and signal and um, uh, all the different, uh, different means of communication that we have with them in India. But um, continue to pray for them. I've been communicating regularly with, with Zach and just letting them know we're praying for them, how much we love them. And, uh, they know that, but they'll be, they'll be back here soon, and uh, we certainly want to love on them here. And then uh, this morning, as we pray for our nation, which desperately needs prayer, um, uh, we've been praying for revival for a long time. We'll also be praying for the nation of Algeria. 
Uh, Lee and Zach, uh, their ministry there in India, even though India is the largest Hindu nation in the world, it's also the largest Muslim nation in the world, just because India has so many people that its Muslim population is bigger than any other nation, Indonesia being the second largest. Uh, but they minister to the Muslim people there in India. We'll be praying for Algeria, which is predominantly a Muslim nation. And you guys know uh, uh, Jonathan uh, or John, Mir- uh, John uh, and Miro, they uh, work together there with Ananias House and serve North Africa and the Middle East. And Algeria is part of the countries that they are ministering to. So we'll also uh, be praying this morning for the work of salvation and revival in the nation of Algeria, which is in North Africa. So uh, we've been praying, uh, if you're visiting or if you're watching online, we've been praying for revival for uh, many years now, going back to, I'd say, 2010 or so. And, uh, but ever since the pandemic, we've been uh, humbling ourselves and getting on our knees for about 45 seconds of silence to just get before the Lord and say, Lord, uh, we need your help. Uh, there's not a single thing we can do. And I, when I look at the violence in our country, the sexual immorality in our country, uh, this, all of this gender confusion, all of the, uh, again, we've got shootings, we've got uh, kids getting beaten up on buses, we've got police beatings, we've got pe- police being shot and killed, we've got uh, mass shootings, we've got uh, political dishonesty at the highest of levels in our nation, and uh, all the things that we see, uh, we are a country that has long forsaken God uh, a long time ago. And I was telling the first service, even though as a nation uh, we have not followed God for a long time, there was even some biblical principles that have been dropping by the wayside in the last 10, 15 years. If you haven't noticed, you've been sound asleep. But um, uh, they've dropped dramatically. Even uh, since 2008, the number of people that say that they are just non-religious and no belief in God has risen dramatically in our country. I mean, we have the next couple of generations, if there's not a revival, uh, we truly will be completely godless, godless at, at almost any level of our society. And so, uh, but there is the power of the gospel, amen? Uh, and there is the power of prayer. And God has called us to be salt and light, and light shines brightest in darkness, so we continue to pray for revival. Uh, and, and first in us, in this church, that God would set us on fire, you know. And, and by the way, if he pours out a revival, I've said this from time to time, it will be uncomfortable for all of us. Let me say that again. If you pour us out a revival, it would be very uncomfortable for all of us. I've been reading through this Selwyn Hughes book, and just um, when God pours out a revival, he, ha- he brings a sensitivity to sin that's not even, I mean, you might be pretty sensitive to sin. It'll be heightened like 10x if God pours out a revival. You would truly, the holiness of God is kind of poured out. And, uh, we've seen that in revivals that have taken place in history, and so we're praying for that for our own country. So if you're able to get on your knees wherever you're at, it's a... Not too bad. Um, you know, we'll just kind of take about 45 seconds of silence. If you can do that, it's easier in the first service than the second service. Um, and you certainly can just sit and just pray with us. No one has to get on their knees. It's just if you feel led to do so. Let's pray together, and then we'll get into John 19. Father, as we sang earlier, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Lord, we know that the angels never stop saying holy, but we can't even comprehend how holy you are, how righteous you are, how perfect you are. But Lord, we we have an inkling because you tell us in your your word that even our righteousness is filthy rags. We bow before you, Father, not because there's anything good in us, but because of the goodness and righteousness of Jesus that you've placed within us by saving faith. We come this morning, Lord, humbly to ask, Lord, that you would hear our prayer, that you'd wash us, that you'd cleanse us even in this room this morning. If we've come in with unconfessed sin or we've come in with wrong attitudes or wrong thoughts or wrong motives, uh, Lord, we just ask that you would purify us. 
We present ourselves, Lord, as living sacrifices to you, Lord, which is our reasonable, our logical service. Lord, we not only pray that uh, you'd bring a revival to our nation, but Lord, we pray first, first of all here in the household of God, Lord, that you'd purify us, your church, your bride, Lord, that uh, we'd lay aside every sin, every weight that so easily ensnares us as Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of, Lord. Uh, we ask, Lord, that uh, you would do a, a purifying work in us in this room, Lord, that we would love you more, that we'd be sheep that would follow the voice of the shepherd. We'd hear your voice and no other voice. We pray for our nation, Lord, which is in darkness, which is in rebellion, which has uh, just completely turned its back uh, against you and is, is pursuing the gods, uh, the ancient gods that we see that, are, that were worshipped many years ago are worshipped still today, worship gods of pleasure, uh, Lord, all the gods that, that are just full of pride. And Lord, we see just the, uh, just the lostness and the confusion and the, the violence and the immorality and the, the lies and the deception. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would awaken this nation, Lord. You'd pour out conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And Lord, you'd turn people from their sins. Uh, Lord, people that we've witnessed to, people that are in our family, our neighborhood is in neighbors and communities and family members, Lord, we pray that there just be a great uh, harvest of souls coming to Christ, Lord. Uh, and Lord, there'd be revival in our cities, whether it be Las Vegas or New York or Los Angeles or New Orleans, uh, uh, Washington, D.C., Lord, all over. And uh, we also pray, Lord, for the Cawthorns this morning. We pray, Lord, that you'd comfort Lee and Zach as only you can. Lord, you just wrap your arms around them, give them the peace that surpasses all human understanding. And Lord, we pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters that are ministering all over the world. Rescue them, heal them, comfort them, reunite them, and Lord, give them your boldness, courage, and a heart full of faith. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated and turn with me to John chapter 19, if you have your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand. You might have one in your phone. But we've got paper ones if you would like, we can hand you as well. So John chapter 19, and we'll pick up with where we left off, starting in verse 31. So we finished through verse 30. Last week we uh, looked at Jesus on the cross, uh, and today we'll see him being taken off the cross and put into the tomb. This is probably a more overlooked part of the whole story uh, around Passover week the crucifixion and the resurrection we talk a lot about. But here in the in between, John dedicates uh, quite a few verses from 31 all the way to verse 42 to this section of what takes place after Jesus has given up his spirit. So pick it up with me in verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers placed his, uh, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture might be, should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones should be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus and Nicodemus, who at the first came to Jesus by night, who, came, who also came and bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Let's pray again. Father, we come before you. We have your word open. We pray that our hearts are open. We, we ask, Lord, that the same spirit, Lord, that has done the work of 
anointing and, and uh, giving John the responsibility and the privilege to write these words that the same Spirit would minister to us here this morning. Lord, I ask for your help. I ask for your anointing. I ask for the fresh uh, filling of your Spirit. Lord, I could never do justice to your Word without the help of your Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to each heart, that you'd soften every heart. Lord, those that are watching online, you would speak to what each person needs. Remove every distraction that, Jesus, you might be glorified, we might be edified, and any souls that don't know you might be saved even today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. For Jesus, the suffering has finally ended. His body is slumped on the cross, but his spirit, as we know, is already in paradise. Where he will remain for what? The next three days. He's already in paradise. That's where he will be the next three days. For Pilate, he no doubt wants to put this day behind him and get back to his typical life. Pilate. Remember when the, remember when the pandemic started and, and it, we got like eight months in and nine months in and people said, I can't wait to get back my normal life, whatever that is for anybody. But Pilate, he was ready to get back to his normal life and routines. For the soldiers, it's business as usual for them. Um, they didn't do it all the time, but it wasn't highly unusual for them to kill and put men and women to death and to crucify. That was part of their job. War, of course, was part of these soldiers' job as well. They'd become callous to taking human life, as evidenced by they're just casually... Uh, gambling for Jesus' tunic while he was in such intense agony. For Caiaphas, the priest, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, this is certainly, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but this has probably been without question the most distracting Passover they had ever been part of because of themselves. They made it distracting. They tried to squeeze in the murder and execution of Jesus in Passover week. You ever, you ever wonder, like, what in the world would make them take such a holy time and squeeze in, of course, they didn't think they were murdering, but they had to squeeze in the murder and execution of Jesus when they normally would be completely focused on Passover week and the sacred feast. That would have been their total focus. At this point, it's hard to say exactly how Caiaphas is feeling, but you don't get the sense from Matthew's gospel, which I don't have time to turn over there this morning, but you don't get the sense from Matthew's gospel that Caiaphas has gotten the satisfaction and closure he was hoping for. And let me tell you, sin never gives you the satisfaction you were hoping for. Amen? You commit a murder, you're not going to have the satisfaction you were hoping for, especially when it's the Son of God. Caiaphas and the leaders... It says the Jews went to Pilate. When it says that, it usually means the religious leaders, in this case Pilate and the leaders. But Caiaphas and the leaders, they're going to be right back in front of Pilate the following morning asking that armed soldiers be put at the front of the tomb to ensure that Jesus stays right where he is placed. Jesus and all the things that he said, they remain on Caiaphas's mind because he said, that deceiver said he'd rise in three days. Everything Jesus said remains in his mind. For the majority of the crowds, the multitudes, all those that were yelling, give us Barabbas, they go back to, at this point, finishing out this Passover week. Many of them are pilgrims that have come from far, so they go back to finishing out the week, convincing themselves that, that what they just did and what they just witnessed was a just result, that, that having Jesus killed instead of Barabbas was just. They might be saying to themselves, certainly the high priest is a holy and a godly man. And if he said Jesus blasphemed God, then he must have blasphemed God. Have you learned by now that sometimes your leaders are lying? Have you learned this by now? They're not always telling. I know they seem like they're always telling the truth, but they're not always telling the truth. <laughs> But they had, they, they, they had come to believe that if Caiaphas said it was true, then he must have blasphemed God, and therefore this was a just result. And if you have even the slightest of doubts, you have to soothe your conscience, don't you? And that's what people are doing. Like, well, this was the right thing. This was, 
This was good. But astonishingly, some, and some that might really surprise us and some that do surprise us, actually became convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, watching him die with such devotion, the thief on the cross, he became convinced that this was the Son of God. Seeing Jesus minister to his mother while he's in agony, other people observe that. Jesus' composure with his dignity in the face of such hatred, his declaration of, to tell us die, it is finished. Convinced some, like the, some of the onlookers, like the Roman centurion, he came to the immediate conclusion, he goes, this really is the Son of God. And he was responsible for those soldiers. So some of these people surprise us that they come to the realization like, whoa, we just killed the Son of God. Have mercy on us. Even as Jesus was giving up his life, he was giving life. Amen? As life was leaving him, it was going into others. And lastly, we have his followers. The eleven, the women, his mother, other disciples that were there that aren't mentioned by name. They had already believed in Jesus. They had already chosen to follow Jesus. And his followers, they are stunned. They are silent. They are sorrowful beyond words. But as they begin to bereave the loss of Jesus, and they don't think he's going to rise three days later, that's not, doesn't appear to be on any of their minds. As far as they know, he is gone. But then we see in some of his, we just see it in Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, we see some boldness and a beautiful love in the face of uncertainty and bewilderment. And if you're taking notes, you see the title this morning, After the Suffering the preparation and burial of Jesus. Go back to verse 31 if your Bibles are open. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked, the Jews being the leaders, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the, the Jews, when you see it capitalized or in that manner, uh, it's the leaders asking Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. In a regular week, Friday, in a normal, normal week on the, uh, the Jewish calendar, which is, follows a lunar calendar, in a regular week, Friday, which is the sixth day, uh, is the preparation day. The seventh day, the weekly Sabbath, was what we call Saturday. This, however, was Passover week. And the Passover day is also considered a Sabbath. The Passover is itself a special Sabbath. John calls it a high day here. So this could have been Thursday in preparation for the Friday Sabbath or the Friday Passover Sabbath, or the high day if Friday happened to be the Sabbath, uh, followed by the weekly regular Sabbath, the, the seventh day Sabbath. Now I'm not a chronology expert. I've studied it many times over the years, and I think I'm more confused now than when I started. Anyone ever studied the chronology and you you find yourself even a little more? You've even changed positions five times in the last, you know, if you're me, you've studied a lot of time, you're like, uh, was maybe, it, maybe it was Wednesday, maybe it was Thursday, maybe, you know, but, but nevertheless, there's plenty written on it, on rectifying the timeline, and just as it relates to Jesus, the Passover, you have the, the Roman calendar, you have the Jewish calendar, some of the writers write from one, some of them write from the other, rectifying all of this, you have the upper room, you have the Last Supper, the garden, the trial, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection. Where does it all fit in those three to four days? But what's noted by John when he says the Jews, Caiaphas and leaders, is they go to Pilate and they request that Jesus and the two thieves, so all three men that are on the crosses, at that point they're still on the cross, two are still alive, Jesus has already passed. They request that the legs of all three men be broken. They're a compassionate group, aren't they? Uh, Pilate, this is the high priest. Would you break all of the legs of the three men that are there on the cross? Now, this would ensure that they would soon suffocate, unable to push themselves up to breathe. Typically, those that were crucified, they would remain on the cross for several days. They wouldn't be alive for several days, but after they had died, they would just stay on the cross 
vultures, birds, wild beasts, all that stuff. That, that's what they would do. They would just leave them on there for the animals to take care of, and they would rot and decompose. They would leave them there for several days to serve as a warning to anyone that would defy Rome or commit crimes worthy of capital punishment. Now, the sunset and the Passover was approaching. So you have the sundown and Passover, both things that, that are important to the Jewish um, culture, and, and obviously uh, they have to bury the dead before the sun sets. And so the religious leaders, they want to make sure these bodies are buried before sundown. These men, they have put to death God's only begotten son in the most cruel way possible, and yet they're very focused on staying, on staying ceremonially clean. They want to be ceremonially clean. Charles Spurgeon said their consciences... We're not wounded by the murder of Jesus, but they were greatly moved by the fear of ceremonial pollution. Religious scruples may live in a dead conscience. We've got a lot of false prophets in this country, false leaders, false pastors, false religious leaders that are dead as a doornail, but will get up and give a homily or some written script or uh, some communion, or whatever it is that they do, but they don't know the Lord. And some of them not only just don't know the Lord, some of them are actually leading people purposely to the broad road of destruction. And Caiaphas was, was one of those, he was not just false, he was actually antagonistic against Jesus, hated the gospel, hated the truth of Jesus. So they still had this outward appearance of religious, of holy, of righteous, of robes, and they wanted to be clean for the Passover when their hands were full of red, guilty blood. But Pilate, remember, he has this whole the working relationship with the Jewish leaders. He accepts their request and has his soldiers immediately, he sends them out to go break their legs. Do it, go at Caiaphas once. I've had enough of Caiaphas today anyway. Anything to just be done, go break their legs. Mean nothing to Pilate, means nothing to soldiers. You and I, we've never broken anyone's legs. Uh, we can't imagine just doing it so flippantly. But they do. They go out to break their legs. All three of these men accelerate their death. Look at verse 32. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. They break both the thieves' legs, which is a horrific act in and of itself, Apparently, both of them were still alive. We know Jesus has already given up his spirit by this time. He said it is finished and bowed his head back in verse 30, gave up his spirit in verse 30. But the two thieves are still alive, or they were, until their legs were broken. It's interesting. Um, you got these two men that are on the cross. They're still alive. Sadly, one of them, his torment is only beginning because he's refused and rejected Jesus as his Savior. There really is more torment of death and, and turning hell by saying no to Jesus. But can you imagine, I, I want you to think about these two guys for just a second. We know that the one has believed in Jesus. We know the one has rejected Jesus. Can you imagine you're, you're, you're dying anyway? You know, you meet people and they say, hey, I, I, I'd love to kind of give my life to Jesus, but I, I still have fun things I want to do. I still have another 10, 15 years when I kind of get all, some, all my wild oats or whatever it is. Then, then I might come to church with you or I might do that, but I, I just want to kind of get it all out of my system. Now, they don't know if they have another week. But not the guy on the cross. He knows he's dying. It's not like he wonders, well, maybe I still have... No, he, he knows he's slipping into eternity. You're dying, and if you're in his case, you're in horrible pain. You're being crucified. You have absolutely nothing to lose by trusting in Jesus. Nothing to lose by trusting in Jesus. Eternity is at stake, and he still refuses salvation. That's believing a lie, isn't it? That, hey, it's going to be fine. I'm going to leave here. Maybe I'll go to a better place. No. But the other man, remember, he came to his senses. We deserve this. He doesn't deserve this. Lord, remember me. And we know he, after his legs are broken, and he can't push himself up, and he slips into eternity, he goes immediately to paradise, where Jesus is already waiting for him. 
Because Jesus had passed away back in verse 30. So when he, I can imagine the scene. I mean, I don't know, but I can imagine Jesus is the first person he sees in paradise. Wouldn't you think? Jesus said, you'll be with me. Jesus has already gone there. He's waiting for him. The pardon and the promise of paradise is fully realized. Understand, men and women, those of you online, it would be better to suffer a horrible death and enter into eternal life than it would to get everything you ever dreamed of, have all the money of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Bill Gates and all the celebrities and have everything you could ever dream of and enter eternal death. You know? Jesus said, what would a man give in exchange for his soul? Look at verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. It's very interesting to me that, you know, that the, the, you know the configuration. Jesus was in the center, and you had the thieves on either side. It would make sense for them to go right down the line. Break the first one, break Jesus, break the third. Because as far as the Roman soldiers were concerned, they were just three criminals. They didn't see any difference between Jesus and the other guy. They're, that's why they were gambling. But in the providence of God, they don't do it that way. They go to this side, then they go to this side, and then they get to the center. Some Roman soldiers were so experienced with the crucifixions that they had been a part of that they just knew when somebody was dead. It's like certain aspects of your job, if you've been doing things for years, you just understand, this is, I understand. You don't need to work it out. You just know certain things. And because Jesus had already died, there's no need for the soldiers to break his legs. Even though they typically still would. Almost always, if the order was given, Pilate says, go break their legs, that doesn't mean unless he's dead. It just means go break their legs. And you can study historical documents. The soldiers did not care if the person was dead already. They still would break them. But they made an exception here. For some reason, they would normally break them anyway. In verse 34, it says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Some, for some reason, we don't know why, this soldier takes out his spear. Now, it's interesting because if they're breaking the legs, that means they would have an, either an iron bar or a heavy wooden mallet which is horrific in and of itself. But for him to do this means he has to kind of lay down that and grab the spear instead. So the whole process, God is kind of moving behind the scenes, saying, put your, put your mallet down. And he grabs the spear and he thrusts it in Jesus' side. Could have been a malicious final blow. Could have been out of hatred. Could have been out of spite. Could have been just a double check. All right, since I didn't break his legs, I at least need to do something that would bring anyone else to death. We don't know. But what we do know is that immediately water and blood comes gushing out of the side of Jesus. It flows out. The priestly duties under the law, you guys have probably read in the Old Testament, specifically in the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The priestly duties... And under the law had very specific aspects that were blood, the sprinkling of blood, but also ceremonial clean water. And you'll see oftentimes, wash it in water, wash it in water, wash it in water, sprinkle it with blood, wash it in water, sprinkle it with blood, wash it in clean water, sprinkle it with blood. And under the law, you had the atoning blood and the cleansing water. And we get the picture coming out of Jesus, it's the same thing. Atoning blood and cleansing water. Atoning blood, cleansing water, flowing out of Jesus the same way it flows into the heart of the spiritually repentant person. In 1 John 5, 6, same author, John would later write to the church, I have no doubt that what he saw that day stayed emblazoned in his mind. Look what he writes in 1 John 5, 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. Uh, now, you guys, you guys know that you know, when there's a 
When there's a birth, there's both water, the embryonic fluid, there's both water and blood at the birth, but there's water and blood at the death of Jesus too. So, and I believe John is tying the whole thing together from the birth of Christ to the death of Christ. He came by water and blood, by, but his blood was always sinless. Even his birth, his blood was sinless. Everything about Jesus was cleansing water, atoning blood. And John writes it. He's like, it's stated. You could kind of see the whole picture from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. I think of the hymn, Rock of Ages. Augustus Toplati wrote, Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Sin has a power, but the blood of Jesus has a greater power. Amen? The cleansing water. One more insight from Charles Spurgeon. I mentioned him earlier, but one more from... He says, One of these old divines says that Jesus Christ was typified by our first father, Adam. As Adam fell asleep and out of his side Eve was taken, so as Jesus slept upon the cross, the sleep of death, and from his side where the spear was thrust, his church was taken. A beautiful insight, isn't it? That Eve was taken from the body of Adam, but the church, we are from the body of Christ. We are become part of him, and he takes us and forms us from himself. In verse 35, and John changes gears here. He said, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. And he goes on to say, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. In verse 35, so John stops for a second, shifts gears, and he stops from his eyewitness description of the scene to stop and, and say, hold on a second, I need you, whoever's reading this, to understand every word that I've written, everything that's been said, everything that has been documented here, to any reader that would ever read the Gospel of John, just as we are this morning, John is saying in verse 35 that he was there. It's not somebody else's witness account. He was there. I've heard people, you know, um, uh, I mean, it's, it's tragic, it's horrible, but you ever heard people that have, you've seen on TV that have denied the Holocaust existed? Yeah. I've seen uh, Palestinian leaders say it. I've seen, uh, you know, neo-Nazis say it and things like that. But then we see testimonies of soldiers that went in and liberated some of these camps and these men, even their 80s, tears start running down their face. You know they're not lying. <clears throat> you see the pain is still there, what they saw. And John saw with his own eyes. He's like, I'm telling you, it's true. No matter what anyone tries to tell you, Satan tries to tell you, well, Jesus was a good man, but he didn't really die on a cross. And even if he did, he didn't write. John's like, everything I'm going to tell you, these things are written that you might believe. John was an eyewitness. He's saying he was there. He was an eyewitness to the death of Jesus and to the majesty of Jesus, that every single word is true. And it was written for one primary purpose, that anyone who reads it might believe. That's why we have We Believe back there on the wall, that anyone who reads it might believe. Believing that Jesus existed is not believing in Jesus. Amen? I mean, I do believe he existed. That's part of, but Lots of people believe, believe Jesus existed. Met people. Remember years ago that uh, movie, The Da Vinci Code? I mean, that, 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 I've met people in the air. I used to fly a lot at that time, and I'd meet people. I would, I'd look around the airplane, like four Da Vinci Codes are out, like on the airplane. I'm like, why, why are they reading this garbage? This has nothing to do with truth. You know, but you get a chance to talk to people, and they'd say, yeah, yeah. but that's not what the Bible says. Open up the Word of God. This is what it says who he is. He was sinless. He didn't marry anyone. The church is his bride. All of these things, John says, I've written these things that you might believe. A lot of people believe, well, Jesus was a good man. No, that's all you believe. He's not your shepherd. He's not your Savior. He's a perfect Savior. He's a perfect atonement, perfect 
satisfaction for our sin. But John wrote what he saw and what the Spirit directed him to write, uh, that souls that would believe in Jesus would not believe simply about Jesus, but they would believe in him as their Lord, as their salvation, as the covering for their sin, as their Savior. The thief on the cross, he was not just saying, I believe that you're good and we're bad. No, he's like, I believe you can save me and I am lost. But it's been well said that belief affects behavior. Belief affects behavior. If you believe that it's key to your employment this week to show up for work, you probably will. If you believe it's key to your employment. Now, a lot of people in the pandemic, they got it all mixed up. They thought, I thought I was only supposed to work three hours a week and wear pajamas all day. <laughs> What's changed? And then now the, all, I, I see all these employers are saying, it's time to come back to the office. You actually have to do something. You can't do it all on virtual. You've actually got to come in. Now, I know that there's plenty of people that work from home and do great at it. I, you know, you, even before, years ago, I had a home office and I could, my wife would have to drag me off my uh, computer because I would do extra and above. But on the other hand, there's also this other, you know, people like, you know, uh, yeah, uh, 20 hours a week will do, you know, whatever it may be. And they, we want 40 from you, whatever it may be. But um, if you believe that seat belts are important, you'll probably put one on. And if you believe that putting gas in your car is pretty important to actually it driving, unless you have a Tesla uh, or, or some electric car, but uh, you believe, then you're probably going to do that. It's going to affect what you do. And if you believe in Jesus, you'll now follow him. Like we saw on Wednesday, the sheep follow the shepherd. If you really believe in Jesus, you don't just say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I kind of I show up two times a year, uh, pay my little uh, offering to God. No, no, if you believe in Jesus, you now follow him and he transforms your life, not just at salvation, but the rest of your life. We can see what Pilate and Caiaphas believed in, self. They didn't believe in Jesus. That's why they were willing to put him to death. They, didn't, they believed in themselves. They believed in the things of this world. They believed in the lie that you can kind of hold on to it forever when you can't. Life is but a vapor. But they believed a lie, and they believed in themselves. And we'll see in the next few verses who Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had come to believe in. The last two verses here in this first section, in verse 36 and 37, John says that these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled, none of his bones should be broken, and another they shall look upon him and they appear. John notes here, and it's of essential importance to God, that all the things that John witnessed and recorded also fulfill prophetic Scripture. That everything John saw, it has to fulfill what was written in prophetic scripture. Just as the prophetic scriptures had to be fulfilled pertaining to the birth of Jesus, they also have to be fulfilled pertaining to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so we know that Jesus had to be born of a virgin, had to be born in Bethlehem, had to be of the tribe of Judah. All those things were important. And just as all those things were already fulfilled in the birth so too all the passages pertaining to his death. Every scripture had to be fulfilled. And they were fulfilled. And once they were fulfilled, they went from foretold to fulfilled. And then now we would consider them history. But when something hasn't happened yet, such as the millennium reign of Christ, it still hasn't happened yet. The rapture of the church hasn't yet happened yet. But someday those things will. They will go from foretold to fulfilled. And once they're fulfilled, they are history, although some of them will be beyond, be beyond history. They'll be eternal uh, in many, many respects. But even if the soldier, to go back to the breaking of the legs of all three, and they break the one, they break the other, but they don't break Jesus' legs, there's something that stops, and of course I believe it's the restraint of the Holy Spirit, stops the soldier. He's not quite sure why he stops short, why he puts the mallet down and instead grabs the spear the scriptures have already said that not one of his bones will be broken. So guess what? Not one of his bones will be broken. And I was telling the first service, if you would have been standing there that day and you saw that Pilate made this proclamation, go break their bones. If you would have asked anyone in the multitude, anyone, say, who wants to put their life savings on the line that one of these guys' bones won't be broken, everybody would have taken that bet. Say, if Pilate said break all their bones, all their bones are going to be broken. But if someone said, 
But I just read, it says in the, Torah, in the Tanakh, not one of his bones will be broken. One of these guys isn't going to get... Nobody would have believed it. They would have been like, no, no. If a soldier was given that, everyone's bones are going to be broken. But all of a sudden, they first one down, second one, gets to the third, puts it down, grabs his spear, and everybody would have been shocked. That shouldn't happen. He would go right down the line. But the Bible already said, not one. Then John makes it a point by the Holy Spirit to make sure the verse is in here that the Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled, that not one of his bones shall be broken, and no bones were broken. He would be mortally pierced, of course. His hands and his feet were nailed to the cross by the providence of God. And then finally his side, pierced by the soldier. And someday, John says, they shall look upon him though they appear someday when Jesus comes in glory at the end of the tribulation period when the whole world will be able to look up and see him coming to judge the world in righteousness. The world will immediately know as Jesus is descending to the earth, they will immediately know, everyone, whether they have ever read a Bible verse at all, they'll immediately know that Jesus is the Savior, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and they'll know that they themselves pierced him. The atheist right now that doesn't even believe would immediately say, that's the man I pierced and put on the cross. The coming world will be guilty of the past crucifixion. Isn't that interesting? Something that took place, the people had a time out. I wasn't there 2,000 years ago. How could I have done this? It says, they will look upon him whom they pierced. And we would have been saying, Lord, we're guilty of putting on the cross had we not cried out for mercy now. Amen? Pick it up with me, verse 38, as he moves to Jesus being taken off the cross after this. So Jesus is not. The other two are killed. Now all three men are dead on the cross. There's no mention of how the other two thieves, if they're removed at all or whatever, but there's no mention of that. But the dust focused on Jesus. After this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, the Jews being the leaders, uh, fear of the religious leaders, those that could keep them out of the temple, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at the first came to Jesus by night, John chapter 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 100 pounds, and they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as is the custom of the Jews to bury. That's how they uh, did the burial process to kind of anoint the whole body with all these uh, spices and, and aloes and then start to wrap on top of that. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden was a new tomb which no one had yet been laid. There, so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Caiaphas and the Jewish leaders, uh, they went to Pilate. They went to Pilate in hypocrisy and then with their callous hearts, wanting to ensure that Jesus and the thieves' legs were broken and that they were removed before sundown, all because of their ceremonial uh, clean focus. But Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, no, they don't approach Pilate with hypocrisy. They approach Pilate with probably some level of fear and trepidation. Their reputations are on the line. Their place in the community is on the line. We know Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. That seat and the Sanhedrin's on the line. It, this is like a defining moment when you and your workplace, you stand up for Jesus and you know it's going to cost you something. And by the way, my corporate, my life back in corporate America, I made a couple of stands that definitely cost me promotions and things in the past. I, I, they absolutely did. My wife can tell you I don't mean to, you just ask her, she'd say, well, this one, this one. And sometimes it will. But everything was on the line for them, and they had some fear and trepidation. Maybe even their lives potentially were on the line. We don't know. But out of love and courage, their fear is overridden with, we must do this for our Savior. If no one else is going to touch his body, we'll do it. If no one else is going to put him in the tomb, we'll do it. If no one else is going to wrap him in linen, we will do it. I don't get most of my insights from 
our political leaders, but I do agree with this that President Roosevelt said back in World War II, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the assessment that something else is more important than fear. And, you know, soldiers that charge the beaches of Normandy, which you find a tiny percentage of young men today that would be willing to die for a cause. Almost everybody thinks they're persecuted because there's no soy milk at Starbucks anymore or whatever else, um, you know, something, you know, or out of almond milk or out of whatever it is, I don't know. But, um, but compared to people that were willing to die for something, like to save the lives of people they didn't even know were in concentration camps halfway around the world, that courage doesn't mean you don't have any fear, but it means you lay the fear aside because something more important I just saw this week, there was a, a toddler, I don't know what country it was in, but it was in a super tall building. The toddler had gotten out of the window and was like hanging on the side of the building. And the dad comes out and is literally hanging on the side of the building and the toddler drops and he catches while still holding on. Both would fall on their death. But he somehow rescued the toddler and they get back in the window. You would not do that unless there was a reason. Like I, my fear of my two-year-old dying is going to, whatever fear of heights I have is out the window. Just this week I saw it, because otherwise there's no way I would do that. But if my child, I, I, it wouldn't matter at that point, if I can save their life. And we know that John himself wrote in 1 John 4.18, perfect love cast out fear. That their love for Jesus was overriding. What if Pilate sells Caiaphas? What if Caiaphas does this? Of course, Caiaphas would have known that they already went to him. Caiaphas would have known immediately. But these two men, that up until this point, had secretly followed Jesus. They had been undercover Christians. Maybe some of you are right now. No one knows you're a believer. It's, it's high time people know. But they had secretly followed Jesus. But after seeing Jesus die publicly, and him sh being shamed and humiliated and spit upon and ridiculed and tortured to death, they are compelled to follow at least and publicly acknowledging that he is their Lord and Savior and expressing their faith in him and their love for him. And the first way they could do it is say, let us take his body down and wrap it in an honoring, loving, careful way. Pilate would have known who these men were. As I mentioned, Caiaphas would have certainly known they went to Pilate. Evidently, Pilate and Caiaphas... Or Pilate didn't care about it that much. It, was, it would be Caiaphas who would care. And Caiaphas, uh, if he does care, we don't have any details about it. But you can't hide taking the body from Jesus down the cross. The whole city knows about th These two men would be, anyone with, watching could see, can you believe, this would be the talk, can you believe that Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin, and Caiaphas, uh, not Caiaphas, uh, and Joseph Arimathea are taking the body of Jesus off the cross. Can you believe that these two guys, these two wealthy men who have servants that would normally do this, they're the ones taking him down from the cross? It says if any time they would take anyone off the cross, it would be slaves or servants that would do this work. It would not be wealthy men. But they head to the cross and they begin the heart-wrenching process of removing Jesus from the cross. I don't know if you thought about it, but it would be a very difficult thing to dislodge someone who's nailed to a cross off the cross. And it, but the bodies had to be removed before sundown. And uh, as I mentioned, when they would do this, it would either be, either be slaves or servants would have to do this work. But here's these two very well-recognized men in the community, one very wealthy, one a member of the Sanhedrin. Even Nicodemus was rather wealthy compared to the population. So you had two wealthy men who had come to fully believe in Jesus, and they began to take his bloody, beaten, beyond, marred beyond recognition body that would have had dirt all over it from when he was carrying the cross and everything else, and they began to take him, and now they're going to be covered in blood and dirt themselves. There's no clean way to do this. When Jesus was on the cross, he was between two sinners. But now his body is in the hand of two men that have the means 
to give him a proper burial. And it says in Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave, that would be his death, with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. These two men that normally would be used to just touching clean things, that had plenty of people that could have done the job, these two wealthy men are themselves the slaves and the servants of Jesus wrapping his body. We can't imagine how this felt to them and the lifetime impact on their mind. They would never forget the body of Jesus literally laying in their arms. It would be painful for them. It would be humbling that they're even touching the sinless body of Jesus. It would be sobering. I imagine the two of them wrapping Jesus in complete silence. Not a single word. What do you say? Maybe tears just dropping onto his body, but they're just wrapping Jesus. And we think back to the beginning. At Jesus' birth, rich men from the east brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it was his mother that wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and now her soul's been pierced just in the last couple of hours. Her, everything's come full circle. What Simeon said, Jesus had been born. The rich men came from the east. Now the two rich men come from the very city of Jerusalem, and they take his body the scriptures were told. And now it's Nicodemus and Joseph who are coming out of being a secret follower and out in the open. There they are in front of the whole city wrapping Jesus and anyone walking by says, can you believe that these two guys are wrapping him and putting these spices on him and putting these out? A hundred pounds, that is a lot of money in that time of expensive, costly things. Matthew tells us that Joseph gave his very own grave. Matthew's got, it was Joseph's grave. It was his tomb that he had chiseled out, which would have cost a fortune to do. And he says, my tomb becomes his tomb. And the tomb was in a garden. It says that there was a garden nearby. And the sin that brought the curse of death began in a garden. The sin began in a garden... But, oh, brother and sister, the curse of sin was buried in a garden, too. Amen? Amen? With the sinless body of Jesus. And after Jesus' suffering and death, yes, some remain in darkness, Pilate, Caiaphas, many others. Some were awakened to faith, the thief on the cross, the Roman centurion. And some, like Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea, they finally took the steps of faith and love and courage that Jesus had been waiting for them to take, and they finally took them. Amen? And maybe you here this morning, maybe there's some steps that Jesus has been waiting for you to take for a couple of weeks, a couple of years, a couple of decades. And he's saying, you need to start taking them. Amen? And love and courage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, which is forever settled in heaven. But, Lord, we ask that it would be settled in our hearts, Lord, that, uh, that we would see that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they're just like us. They're afraid of the cost. They're afraid of what people will say. They're afraid of uh, harm. But, Lord, the more we love you, those things drop to the side. That it's true. Perfect love does cast out fear. And, Lord, we can become fearless followers as we become just as sheep that Father Shepherd, just listening to your voice, not worrying about the surroundings, not worrying about what could happen, what might happen, just listening to the voice of the Savior. And Lord, you've told us already to take up our cross and follow you, that there is a cost. But Lord, we have eternity to gain, and there's nothing in this world to hold on to. And, and Lord, just as these two wealthy men realized there was nothing worth holding on to, but the body of Jesus. And Lord, that even as we'll be taking the, the communion elements and we're remembering the body and blood of Jesus, Lord, that we too would not just take you in our arms, but Lord, that uh, as you've already placed by your spirit your life in our hearts, Lord, you would take total control of our hearts, every corner of our heart, that we would truly surrender all. And we just ask, Lord, that you would uh, minister now as we take of these elements, remembering your death and your burial and your resurrection. But, Lord, before we do that, if there's even one that you've spoken to here, Lord, I pray that you would 
uh, just prick the hearts of anyone that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. And before we take the Lord's Supper, I just want to ask if there's even one person here today. Maybe you came, maybe you're invited, maybe you're uh, visiting, maybe you've come for a long time and you've never really put your faith and trust in Jesus. I don't want to assume that every single person is already a born-again believer in Jesus. But if you have never asked him, like the thief on the cross so wisely did, to be his Lord and Savior, raise your hand. I want to pray with you. If there's even one person at all here today that says, I, I want to give my heart and life to Christ today. I don't want to put it off any longer. I don't want to wait another minute. I don't, I don't know if I have another day on earth. Anyone at all, just raise your hand, and I'm going to pray with you. There's, the Bible says that today is the day of salvation. The rest of us know him. If you know him as your Lord and Savior, I pray that even as we sing these songs, and Gary's going to lead us, that you just take time right now in your hearts to thank Jesus for coming, for suffering for you. He would have done it if you were the only one on earth and, and dying for your sins. Yes, he died for the sins of the world, but he died for us personally and, and thanking him and just, just recommitting yourself. Even as we take these things, elements once a month, this is just a recommitting, re-identifying that Jesus is first and foremost in our life. So... Just take this time to pray and thank the Lord and Gary will lead us in worship and you can do that through song or through quietly praying and then in a few minutes we'll take these elements together.